Okay. We got my mic people. Simeon, you want to be a mic guy? Okay. I, I'll tell you right off the bat what happened initially was I skipped over, um, I meant, and then I went back. I skipped over A, 2, and 3 and started to jump to B and then had to go back. because Here's the funny thing. We started, this will be funny for me at least, Serena and I started the whole 30. Do you guys know what that is? It basically is misery and sadness for 30 days. No sugar, no dairy, no grain, no, yeah. And it's been actually, this, I was commenting this morning, I felt really clear-headed, really focused. I'm like, oh, this might be good. I told Daniel I'm feeling really clear-headed. And then I just jumble my notes, so God keeps us humble. Hi, baby. Okay. Um, so, that's great. I was telling you, how much, how much greens did you hide in that smoothie? Two cups. Two cups of spinach? Two cups of spinach and mint hidden in the smoothie. She's a magician. Okay. So any questions first off on the blanks, which I would totally understand. Any blanks related questions from this morning? Donna. Everybody here probably knows this but me, but I was surprised that Jesus ate in front of him. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't even remember reading that. Right. Just a comment, I guess. Oh, yeah. Okay. Any miss, no missing blanks? We're good with the blanks then? No missing blanks. Okay, questions or thoughts on the resurrection this morning's text? Naomi Olsgaard. Um, paralleling off that, I thought it was a brilliant proof. Both brilliant in its effectiveness and brilliant in its simplicity. Just the fact that he could consume food. The food is there, the food is no more. If food is something they'd have lying about, it is both Simple and brilliant. I thought it was amazing. Cool. Naomi. I have a surprisingly deep voice. <laughs> yes, I was like, Naomi, what have you been eating lately? Hello. Go now. Uh, so my question was, um, I was just wondering why it was the disciples were so unbelieving about him being raised from the dead when they had already seen evidence of it happening before with Lazarus and with John the Baptist. Um, we have to guess, ultimately. We, we know partly just they're weak. I mean, there's a sense, I was talking to Pastor Daniel, there's a sense that until the Holy Spirit comes in, on them in Acts 2, they're like lost puppies. I mean, they really are just kind of bewildered, befuddled dullards. Um, and, and we're meant to see this massive transformation that comes when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. Uh, secondly, I, I think they, they're stand-ins for us. Jesus did not pick the smart clever, gifted guys, right? I mean, so Paul, what? That's Paul. That's Paul, yeah. Um, I mean, in fact, go to, uh, go to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul makes it clear, uh, we are not the cream of the crop from, from a worldly vantage point. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says... Verse, yeah, 26. For consider your calling, my brothers. Not many were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And we get clear proof of that. And I, I think, again, as I was saying this morning, in God's purposes is to emphasize this isn't their invention. This is not something that they were going to jump to. We can add into that there from what we gather from them asking about the kingdom. I mean, they're all about this kingdom. They, they want, they're, they're nationally loyal, and they want Israel to be exalted. If you go to Acts chapter 1, even after um, 40 days with the risen Lord? That's the question they're asking. So look, look in Acts 1. I mean, this is right where Luke goes right into. And um, verse 4, and while staying with them, he... Uh, okay, so actually go back to verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, what's the question they're still asking? Lord, will you now, finally, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus didn't respond, no, all millennialism is right, there's no kingdom. He just says, don't worry about it. Um, So... One of the things this proves is they're still, after 40 days of teaching, and he's teaching on the topic of, verse 3, the kingdom of God. Jesus spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. At the end of those 40 days, they're still expecting a literal, physical kingdom. Um, And and those who hold to amillennialism as an eschatological view don't believe there will be a literal, physical kingdom. And yet the disciples, 40 days with Jesus, the topic of teaching the kingdom of God... And all Jesus says is, don't worry about the timing. It's not for you. So partly, Naomi, I think of, their, of why they're so slow to believe is you can see what a emphasis they placed on the geopolitical kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus was teaching. It is going to come. And they're so expecting a Messiah who's going to bring that salvation and that deliverance that they just don't have gears and, and they don't have boxes. They don't have gears. Then have boxes for a crucified Messiah. That's part of it. But no, we do look on. But we have this side. We're looking at it indwelt by the Holy Spirit with 2,000 years of history, knowing how the, the story ends, knowing how the cross happens. We know the end of this. We have a lot of advantages. They don't. Um, but no, I don't, I don't know beyond that why they're so slow to believe. It would be a, a conglomerate of those reasons and perhaps some others. There is some speculation at a certain level. But I'm thankful because their slowness to believe gives us these repeated proofs and evidences. And let me piggyback off of one other thing Jake said. I tried to make the point this morning, but one of the things to keep in mind is Jesus' humiliation was for only about a 33, 34-year period. Um, He's not the little baby in the manger anymore. The last time he shows up that we see him in the Bible uh, he shows the, the Apostle John in Patmos, and John falls down on his face as if dead to the risen Lord. And after his resurrection, according to Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is glory to the glory of God the Father. So this side of the resurrection, this is the exalted, glorified Lord who is letting people touch him, who is saying, you got something to eat? <laughs> I mean, it's so informal in that sense. I mean, his, his patience with them and his gentleness with them is absolutely astounding when you realize this side of the resurrection, the, the humble humiliation is over with. It's no longer necessary. So, so Jesus humbling himself for the incarnation, walking among us, not taking advantages of his privileges and prerogatives, was part of the incarnation. But after the resurrection, that is no longer necessary. So all of Jesus' gentleness and patience is just a demonstration of his own humble, meek mindset, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, what emperor or king says, here, you can come and touch me? You know, like, no, it's really me. And just informally, as you were saying, Jake, you got something to eat? <laughs> this, it's, it's remarkable um, that I don't think we get that because we're so comfortable with what I call high-five Jesus. You know? um, and Jesus is the Lord of glory. He, he, when we see him, we're not going to be like, you know, <laughs> we're going to worship or fall down as if dead. <clears throat> we're going to be in awe. Um, and so our, our Lord here is incredibly patient with them. Other? Yes, Elsa. Um, I was thinking when you were preaching, um, we think we're so much better than them, but if huh. you think we see through a sonar a baby in a womb, and most people will stay, still say, it's not a baby, right? right? Well, actually, this is a slight tangent, but I'll go there. The argument now, they can't deny that it's human, and they can't deny that it's life, the argument is it's not a person. By the way, that's the same argument used for slavery. It's, the argument's on personhood, because scientifically it's life, right? It's living. Scientifically, what type of life? It's human. The argument's personhood. 
um, which is incredibly speculative. It's not like they have any clear designation of when personhood begins. There's no agreement. You even have some of the more radical people advocating that real personhood doesn't achieve till two or three years old. If you put personhood at self um, cognition, you, I, you know, they, they recognize themselves as a self. So that you actually have some of the more radical tenured professors at like Yale saying it should be legal to do an abortion up to two years of age. Yeah. So, yes. So there's a sense in which we're wise, Naomi, but as we're also pretty dumb, <laughs> um, which, which is evidenced as well. Yeah. Okay. What else? Oh, you need a microphone. Yeah, same man could use the exercise. Good, smart. It's, it's very exercise, right? Thank you. Okay, so what's the difference between in John twenty seventeen when Jesus said to Mary, "Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them," and when Jesus said to the disciples, "Go ahead and touch me," and don't know. Oh. I will find out for you. What I mean simply is, I could speculate, but I haven't studied that passage in John, and honestly, the times I've read it before, I've always wondered, what's going on there? Yeah. I will make it a point to look into it and get back to you. I do not, off the cuff, know, so rather than okay. trying to guess, I will get it. I'll okay, get back thank to you. It. No, it's a great question. Oh, we got somebody who might know. Sue Kern. Well, I just, um, on what you were talking about, I've heard that do not cling to me was just like, not physically. He didn't mean physically. Just like, don't expect me to stay around, you know? Right. That, I've, 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 that's one possibility. Some people have suggested, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of some views. One of the possibilities is this, this notion of don't go, stay. Like, no, I, I, I got to go ascend. Um, that certainly is, is a potential option. But Steve's got the answer here. Well, no, I just agree that obviously she's touching him. She's wrapped her arms around him and clinging to him and won't let him go. Right. Right. Okay. Simeon with Jake. I think it's really interesting the way the uh, apostles and disciples are all portrayed as similarly blind, similarly inept at understanding this. Um, If... It's sort of a the perfect antidote to sort of an early cult of personality yes. within the church. We're all, you know, they're all equally stupid. They don't pick this up. Um, if there had been one, you know, rising star, you know, who could have like, no, I get it. No one else got it, but I got it. You know, because like you said, since Apollos and Paul, I mean, we've had cults of personality within the church ever since. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, all the same, all equally slow. I just think that's a very interesting portrayal. You know, it really is part of the hallmarks of an authentic historical document. Again, uh, what other what other religion paints its founders so pathetically? And again, when this was originally written, and, and we know now, it used to be, that the answer used to be from like neo-Orthodoxy in the 19th century that these Gospels weren't written until 3rd, 4th century in Egypt, so they could get rid of the problem by saying, sure, the founders are painted as buffoons because there are no founders, they're myths anyway, and if they were alive, they're all dead. And then we found Papyri 52, which is a fragment of John's Gospel. It dates to 125 AD. And as best as we can guess, John was written between 70 and 90 AD, so this is like 30 or 40 years old. And that argument flies out the window. No, we know, we know the New Testament documents were written at the time right around the time the events occurred. So if these people aren't alive, the next generation is. And so now, again, the challenge is back to why would you paint your founding leaders who are potentially still alive so ineptly, so weakly? I mean, you got Peter boasting and then denying. It's, it's the hallmarks of authenticity. It's not the hallmarks of legend and myth. What we generally do with legend and myth is make what's called a hagiography, Right, so like shortly after the American Revolutionary War, you get these hagiographies of the founding fathers and George Washington skipping a silver dollar across the Potomac and chop the chopping down of the cherry tree. Because what we want to do is make our founding our heroes better, right? We want to make them look better. Um, I've just been reading a biography on Thomas Cromwell, and I'm amazed at how 
much better other short treatments on him made him look. The guy was devious. I mean, the cause of Protestantism was helped by him. The guy himself, like, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, he was burning people too. I mean, he, and so you realize that the, the glamour gets stripped away and you're like, oh, okay, this, this guy's a broken guy too. That's, but generally what happens is you, you, you make your people, your heroes, your founders look better and not the opposite. Gotcha. Yes, L. Ron Hubbard. Joseph Smith. Smith, Right. And as more and more data comes out about him, you realize what a questionable character he was even before. I mean, the the best, not the best thing. The only reason I think that Mormonism gained the traction it did is because he was martyred. And so he went out in this blaze of glory. He was, they, they lynch broke into the jail where he was being housed and killed him and you know, and so you're able to make him a legend in that sense. But uh, it, there's every evidence that his sort of character issues would have come out sooner than later. He just was killed too soon for that to happen. Um, yes, Marian. Um, I was just kind of curious, and you might cover this next week because it's kind of in the verses ahead. Oh. But um, with when they were on the road to Emmaus, they were obviously blinded from recognizing who he was, and then he opened their eyes. Yes. And then he opened their minds in verse 45 yes. to understand the scriptures. Is that something similar, or are we just talking? I mean, I can't imagine what their kind of not only three days, but like a week had been for them as far as mm. with the trials and then the crucifixion, and then all of, they had to be exhausted, one, but. The, connect, the connection there, yes, they're connected, but there's a middle piece. In the, in the story of the Emmaus Road, first Jesus opened to them the scriptures. So in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures. And they then later summarized that in verse um, 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? which is the same verb used the verse before, their eyes are opened. So first, the scriptures are opened, and then their eyes are opened. So Jesus opens the scriptures to them, those particular scriptures. That same verb is the one used in 45. He opened their minds. So now they can reproduce it. They can, they can see it. In other words, in the first instance, he's opening the scriptures to show them. Now they're given the apparatus mentally with spiritualized to do the same thing. They're able to reap, which is what we see in the book of Acts. So yeah, that connects with their eyes. In the Emmaus Road, their, their eyesight being opened connects with their insight into Scripture. And then Jesus opens the Scriptures to them, to their minds in the, at the end of Luke. Yes. Yes. And yes, we will get there next week. Hopefully. We'll see how far we get. It's the Great Commission in Luke. It's a lot to be said for it. So, um, Okay. Anything or anybody else? Yes, Serena. Need a microphone there. Oh. As far as the importance of the resurrection, are you going to talk about preterism? Is it common nowadays? I don't think it is, but we can go there. Sure. Okay. When we talk about differing views of eschatology, one of the uh, views involves a form of the technical term is preterism, which is the key is the prefix pre. Right, um, And so one of the debates about eschatology is how significant the events of 70 AD are. Um, I tended to underemphasize that going through Luke because the New Testament, portions of it were written after 70 AD, make nothing of it. And yet at the same time, it's hard. what happened, for those of you who don't know, what happened in 70 AD is the Roman general Titus surrounds Jerusalem breaks down its walls, crucifies a couple hundred thousand Jews, and destroys the temple stone by stone, as Jesus predicted. Okay? And the Jews are scattered. In fact, the early Christian persecution protected the Christians, because it drove them out of Jerusalem before all that happened. In one sense. Um, and so, the question then is, how significant prophetically is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD? And so, some preterists want to argue, and so then the question is, how much of what the book of Revelation talks about and how much of those things in Second Thessalonians took place in 70 AD? I've argued very little, um, very little, and 
I'll give you one example. We know what we know. We don't know. Um, we are very confident the book of Revelation itself was written in 92 AD. And we get that date from Eusebius, the earliest church historian who lived within a century or two of that time period. And he claims he got it from a disciple of John, the date of when John wrote. So that puts it 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's hard to argue the, the events and the prophecies in the book of Revelation were fulfilled in 70 AD. What I tend to think is that um, the events is... What you see oftentimes in scripture is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So when Habakkuk is, no, Habakkuk, no, Hezekiah, sorry, different age. When Hezekiah is sick and he, and he wants more life and he wants more time and the prophet comes to him and, and he says, okay, you're going to get to live to be another, you know, another 8, 10, 20 years. But actually it's going to work out poorly because Israel is going to collapse. He says, well, what sign will you give me? And that's when his shadow moves backwards. The sun, the shadow moves backwards. So you get this near sign to confirm a far sign. I think something like that's going on when Jesus talks about the ultimate destruction of the temple and the judgment coming, that what happened in 70 AD, where stone by stone the temple is taken apart, is a near fulfillment that guarantees the long-term greater fulfillment. Because other things that happened in 780, they set up an altar of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on it. Um, and so that's clearly in line with the types of things that are going to happen in Revelation with the Antichrist. So the problem with full-on preterism, there are, so there are variations of preterism, people who think more and less happen. And where you run into problems is if you think all of it happened in 780. And there are some folks who do that. And in my old church, the first church I went to in New Hampshire, had a big problem with this because it turned out one of the staff pastors believed in full-on preterism. Full-on preterism would argue all of eschatology, all the predictions of Scripture have been fulfilled already in 780. And now we're living in uncharted territory. The problem with that is if you argue that, you would then have to argue that we are living in the resurrection. And then you have to say we're living spiritually resurrected. Which then you have to say that's how Jesus was resurrected because the scriptures insist that as he is, we will be made like him. And so actually working that through, you end up weakening and ultimately denying the physical resurrection of Jesus, which of course, as we saw this morning, is very, very problematic and bad. So yeah. Now, you can be on varying degrees thinking more stuff happened in 70 than others. That's, that's fine. We're in the ballpark. But if you want to try to say it's all done in 70 AD, you're going to have to either contradict yourself or conclude Jesus only rose spiritually, and that's going to put you, according to First John, on the other team. So you don't want to go there. Is that what you were going for? All right. Other questions, thoughts, complaints? Sarah. So in Romans 6, it talks about how we'll be, we'll be made like Jesus in the resurrection. And looking at what Jesus does just in Luke 24 with his resurrection body, what's the nature of the resurrection? That's a great question. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians, actually, to solve that in 15. The short answer is I don't know, because I don't know, because Jesus is God, and he can do whatever he wants. I don't know what things Jesus is doing post-resurrection are a function of his resurrection body or are a function of he's God and he has to do what he wants. So will we be able to disappear? Possibly. I don't know whether Jesus' disappearance from the disciples is because, hey, that's what resurrection bodies can do. Or if he's God and if he wants to disappear, he's going to disappear. I don't know. But Paul does uh, discuss this, and this is actually where I wanted to go. Um, every week I'm going to have some extra places to go for the, when the questions die out. And 1 Corinthians 15 is where I wanted to go this today. Um, after Paul deals with the argument of reductum absurdio, showing if you deny a general resurrection, you also have to deny Jesus' resurrection. And if you do that, these things follow. After doing that, in the verses we looked at in uh, 12 through 19, he then starts speaking about the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection body. So let's, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, then he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is exempt who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So he's giving a rough sort of timeline. Jesus is the first fruits. Then later at his coming comes the resurrection. And then ultimately Jesus is going to be ruler of all. And then he's going to hand that kingdom over to his father. Otherwise, and then here's the most, probably one of the most cryptic verses in the New Testament or the Bible. Um, otherwise, why do people, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Don't ask me what they mean by that. I'm not sure. I definitely don't think the Mormons have that one right though. They do proxy baptism. Um, anyway, uh, so then if the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger? I think the most likely answer, by the way, is people being baptized, um, following their faith in honor, following that lineage of them. Like this, my found my, the person who discipled me was martyred. They're dead and I'm being baptized too. Anyway, it's, it's a tough passage. I'm not going into it. We're moving forward. My wife just gave me a funny look. Okay. Um, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Then look at verse 35. But someone will ask, and here we pick up Sarah's question. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Sorry, Sarah. That's not me. That's Paul. I don't write the mail. Just deliver it. Um, okay. No. You're being a good sport. You foolish person. Ugh. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Let me pause. What Paul's going to insist and emphasize both halves of this is on the one hand, there is continuity between your current body, my current body, and the body of the resurrection. There is continuity. On the other hand, they're radically different. And he will insist both of those points in what follows. So just be looking for both of those points. First, continuity, then discontinuity. So, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind to seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, and another for animals, another for bird, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So the angels, when they appear um, on earth, when, when those visitors come to Abraham, they looked human, right? Um, I think he even cooked them a meal. And, and the Hebrews talks about entertaining angels unaware. So, you know, they, heavenly beings can have a body of sorts, um, even though they're spirit beings. There's, there's a heavenly body. Um, and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So here's where we start to get some differences. Our bodies from the day we're born are dying, decaying, breaking down, right? Getting older. I'm now at the point, I'm now, a decade ago, I reached the point where I don't bounce back from everything fully. No, when you're younger, you just you get back, bounce back from everything. Now it's like, you know, maybe this shoulder is just going to hurt on, off, and on for the rest of my life. You know, because I hurt it a while back. You know, maybe that joint's just going to be in very degrees of, of discomfort. Right? right, Mark? Mark was talking about needing to stretch this side of 50 every morning earlier today. Um, and so our bodies are decaying. They're breaking down. Um, and so it's a perishable body. One of the wondrous realities is the resurrected body won't be. Um, for not all flesh is the same. Okay. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So I mean, we have a body that's never going to wrinkle. That's never going to 
bruise. It's never going to get cut. It's not going to be perishable. How that's going to work? Don't know. Um, 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised, um, what could we, I got to keep stop looking up. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So it characterizes our current bodies. They're perishing. They have dishonor. They're weak. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. By the way, this is why Jesus' resurrection is unique. Because some people have said, well, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and and so is the widow's son, um, and so was Jairus' daughter. Yes, but none of them were raised with that transformed and changed body. They, they were still raised in perishable, weak, um, shameful bodies that all continued to die and perish. What's, what's crucial and unique of Jesus' resurrection, he's the first. The Greek is literally protokos. We get the word prototype from. He is the, the first fruits of the resurrection. So here is the, the prototype of the resurrection, as it were. Um, it is so in the natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. By the way, pause. Did any of you notice that extra, ver- not extra, the verse we don't normally sing, to hark the herald angels sing? No? No one did? Okay. We sang it twice. Adam's image now a face, shapest then in your... It's, that's all referencing that type of picture, the first Adam and the second, the last Adam. And then the logic is that Adam is a head, is a um, representative of a people. And so when Adam sins, all of his descendants, all of his people sin in and with him. We're born sinners. He's, he's a, he's, that's his mark upon us. We're sinners. And now Christ, the second Adam, he's tested just as Adam was. He is faithful, and he redeems and gives life to his people. That's, that's what that's playing off of. Um, Christmas carols, those Christmas carols were written when people were much more familiar with the Bible culturally than most of us are. Um, so the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, there's the reference to Hark the Herald, um, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Then we get to verse 50, which some people think contradicts what Jesus said today. So Jesus says in our passage today, Spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. Jesus says, I have flesh and bone in the resurrection body. And then Paul says, um, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And they say, wait a sec, Jesus has flesh and bone. And Paul says, well, there's two problems. One, they don't line up perfectly. Jesus says flesh and bone. Paul says flesh and blood. And I'm not even sure if that's the critical issue. Paul's point is, as things stand now, corporeally, corporeally, physically, you're not going to be able to, this body would not last very long in heaven. It's not suited for it. It needs to be changed. And um, there needs to be a transformation. Now, the other side of that transformation, there's still going to be a physicalness to that body. Okay? The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now Paul's emphasizing the difference, the discontinuity. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, the short answer, Sarah, is Paul doesn't actually tell us much about the resurrection body other than it will be imperishable, it will be honorable, it will be glorious, and it will be really different. Then we can make some observations from Jesus. 
But again, I'm not certain which observations are inherent to the resurrection body and which are Jesus just being God. So I don't know. That's, but that honestly is about the extent of what I think the Bible says about the resurrection body, which is to say it'll be wondrous, it'll be glorious, it'll be unperishable, and we'll find out. Anyone want to add to that? But 1 Corinthians 15 really is the longest extended discussion on the topic that I'm aware of, for sure. And, okay. Other questions or thoughts? Oh, Elsa. I have a question about that piece about Adam. Because a lot of people say Adam and Eve was just a myth. It's just oh, no. nonsense. It's just, there wasn't really an Adam and an Eve. It's just stuff. So if that is true, then this is not true, right? Because right. this kind of uh, confirms it's that. It's a little off topic, so I'll make a short reply. I'd be happy to make longer replies. But my short reply is absolutely. The New Testament consistently connects Christ with Adam. Jesus talks about a physical Adam, and so it's very difficult to erase Adam without also beginning to unravel Jesus. Um, that, that is certainly going to be problematic in the New Testament, that Jesus believed in a real Adam, Paul believed in a real Adam, Moses believed in a real Adam. And when you start saying, just as Adam, so Christ, as Paul does in the middle of Romans 5, well, if Adam's a myth... And you start working that through that equation, just as so then, it starts unraveling rather quickly. Um, but but let's, I'm going to stay on focus, so that's my short answer for that. Absolutely, though. Yes. Other questions or thoughts? Oh, Steve. I wanted to suggest that this uh, resurrected body will also have a physical home. Uh, you hinted a little bit that, well, maybe the kingdom of God isn't a real place. I hinted at that? Well, yeah. when did I do that? Uh, if I did, I apologize. 17 minutes ago. So, okay. You listening to the podcast, I expect you to check and verify. Okay, go. Um, yeah, I think it's very definite that there is a physical yes. kingdom, yes. a physical place with doors and roads and yep. places of abode. Yes. And not just in the kingdom. So to step back and look at our understanding, my understanding, our church's understanding of what the future holds, here is the, the timeline, as, as we can tell. This age continues, going from bad to worse, um, as Paul says. And then um, the Christ will return. He'll do battle. I'm just doing the big bird's eye view. He'll do battle with the... With the armies of the earth and defeat them with the sword of his mouth. We, we saw that this morning and when we sung Martin Luther's hymn. Look, just because it's, whoever's doing the slides, just because it's not under copyright, we can still put the people's names who wrote him. Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Sorry, I was looking for it and it wasn't there. And legally you don't have to put it there because it's not under copyright, but come on. Um, so Martin Luther, one little, uh, that foe, one little word shall fell him. Was it's the sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus' mouth. We don't know what he's going to say. Well, Jesus is the word of God as well. Uh, we'll, we'll talk tonight, Lee. We'll talk. Lee wants to know the word. <laughs> I, must, I want to wield the power of the word. You can't handle the word, Lee. Okay. Um, so, so Jesus comes back. He fights up the enemies of the world. He establishes a kingdom. Probably most clearly that's seen in Zechariah uh, 14. If you want to read there, go read Zechariah 14, and Jesus returns, and he fights. His foot comes down on the Mount of Olives, and, and he sets up this kingdom, and the, 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 the nations of the world go up year after year to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Israel. Then Satan gets unleashed and deceives the nations of the world, and they revolt again. And there's the Battle of Armageddon, as it's referring to, or Megiddo, at which point the the Lord will do away with this present order. And that's where Revelation talks about he will, he will make a new heavens, a new earth. So when, Jesus, when Revelation talks about God wiping away every tear, that's not till then. Um, there are still tears. There will be tears until the new heavens and the new earth. Go to, go to uh, Revelation 21. That's when um, finally, the final state of what we call the eternal state and God may have other things planned. He just hasn't told us about them. Revelation 21. Um, 
And if you look at 20, you see that's the thousand years, there's the kingdom, um, at the end of which the great white throne judgment happens, there's a revolt, and there's final judgment. And then, let's actually let's pick it up at the end of 20, let's pick it up at 11, 2011. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Some of these descriptions of God are just awesome. I love this one. So God the Father never really gets described. But when they try to describe God the Father, words fail, and you get stuff like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From him, his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the final judgment. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, let me flip the page. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his, this heritage. I'll be his God. He will be my son. And so this is the final state of affairs. One of the, one of the neat things is there's no temple. You, you see that in verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. For his temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So all through human history, uh, starting in the garden, going to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, temple, this picture of temple is a place where man and God meet, sin gets dealt with. And so the sacrifices are made, God meets with Moses, a man meets with his friend face to face in the temple. Then Jesus shows up and he says, I am the temple because he's where God and man meet and sin is dealt with. And finally, in the final state of affairs, in a sense, the entire universe is temple because God is dwelling with man with no separation, no alienation, no hostility, no need of sin to be dealt with. And so there is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are, are there. And the God, dwelling place of God is with man. That's, that's the end game, the end state of affairs. But in all of that, there is a physical dwelling place. The only time you will not have a physical dwelling place is if you die before the Lord's return. And then we see, if you go to Revelation 5, disembodied souls under the throne of God crying out for vengeance, or avenging, not vengeance, they want to be avenged by Grabthaw's hammer. Um, okay, no one gets that reference. That's fine. That's fine. Um, is it five? No, it's not five. Where are the souls under the throne? Six? Is that what it is? Yeah, there it is. Six. Thank you. Verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there's people without bodies. They're given a robe. I don't know how this stuff all works. I don't know how this stuff all works, Lee. I've just, their souls under the altar and they're given a robe. Cool. Yep, yes. Um, but yeah, the only time that we will exist non-corporeally as we do now, differently than we do now, 
is if we die before the Lord returns. At the Lord's return, the resurrection takes place. And then um, from then thenceforth, we will be, we, we are composite beings. And let me correct a couple errors. People slip into our language. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You don't have a body. You are a body. You are an ensouled body. We are duplex beings. Me is not my soul only. Jeremy is a soul and a body joint. So this is me. My soul is me. And it's not me and a body. And, or, or the other flip it around. It's not you know Jeremy with a soul inside of him. We are ensouled bodies. And part of what makes death so horrific is death separates soul from body. The body decays. And then part of the glory of the resurrection is the reunion of that separation that death brought about. So, yes, quite right, Steve. We will have a physical abode. And even if you keep reading in Revelation 21, there's a city, there's walls, there's a river, there's trees, there's fruit. Like it's, it's, the, Some of these pictures we get in our heads of sitting on clouds with a harp just sort of you know, strumming kumbaya for eternity, that's not the picture the Bible paints at all. Um, five minutes, Greg Sweet. I just wanted to correct something you said. Oh, please do. You said... Um, do you know how many minutes ago, though? Uh, five will be enough for five, this particular... Four or five minutes ago. Excellent. Um, you said there will be a battle. Yes. Um, there won't be a battle. That's and a very you, you know that, and I mean, we all know that, but we need yeah. to remember yeah. that, that it isn't, it, it's not going to tax Jesus to fight that battle. Right. No, no. He simply looks over the enemy and strikes them dead. Yep. Yes, yes. As I heard one preacher who I won't name say, when you show up to a fight dressed in white, you're pretty confident about how that's going to wind up. Uh, and Jesus shows up in a robe dipped in blood that is white on a pale horse. No, it's a battle from the sense of everyone's gathered and the guns are out. It's not a battle in the sense that there's no struggle. It's just defeat. It's just instantaneous boom. He... he opens his mouth, and he speaks, and they lose. So yes, it, is, it would make a very poor movie shot. You know, you'd be waiting. No, because be, you'd be looking at all these armies and you know, technology and guns, and it's, it's over. Yes, quite, quite correct, Greg. I, I, I welcome the correction. Thank you. Yes, Simeon. Um, can we go over templing a little bit through the Bible? So, or tabernacling, whichever one you want to call it. Sure. Well, quickly overview, because because I'm trying to so so God comes down he he tabernacles with Adam and Eve then that breaks and then it happens again with Israel. As, Wait, you're skipping steps. Let's just I'll track through it in the the one minute version. Yes, please. So God and Adam, God and man meet in the garden, and when there's sin, an animal dies. You don't get an animal skin without a dead animal, right? So where is sin dealt with in the first instance, and where did God and man meet? Garden. Okay. Yep. Then what we have are these altars that Abraham would set up, and he would offer an animal and commune with God. Okay. Then Moses sets up the tent of meeting, mm-hmm. which he would go to, and he'd come out, and his face would be shining, and to wear a veil, because he'd meet with God, and there's the language, as God meets with a man face to face. Even though at the same time, no one's ever seen God, and when God passes by Moses, so there's a sense in which he's seeing God face to face. There's a very, another significant sense in which, no, he's not. But it's still enough that it's making him incandescent and glow in a creepy kind of way that would freak out the Israelites. Then, as they start to move from Sinai, they make the tabernacle. God gives them the tabernacle code. Now, there's a more formal structure. It's not just a tent of meeting. So when they leave Egypt to Sinai, tent of meeting, leaving Sinai, they got the tabernacle code. They're putting together the tabernacle, all of its accoutrements and ornaments. Then they enter the land. The tabernacle goes to Obed-Edom because... Um, who's the guy who touches the ark and gets struck dead? Yui? Uzi. Uzzah. Uzzah touches the ark, right? So they're taking the ark because David captures the, um, the Jebusite stronghold and makes it Jerusalem. Salem becomes Jerusalem. And he, it's a shrewd political move because he, he, he obviously which tribes could get the capital get some honors. So he takes a city that no tribe has had claim to and he makes it kind of like what happened here with Washington, D.C. when they moved the capital to D.C. So D- David's 
on his way to bring the ark there, when Uzzah touches it, gets struck dead, and then they rethink their plans. <laughs> and they said, maybe we're not sure we want the ark. And so they send it to the house of Obed-Edom, and it sits there for a couple of years. And the, the tabernacle just sort of camps out there. Then David brings it to Jerusalem. That's when he's dancing, and, and um, Michal looks at him and despises him. And then the tabernacle gets set up in Jerusalem. Then David wants to build a house, and you get the Davidic covenant as a result of that. Then Solomon builds the temple, and now we actually have a physical structure. And the next new development is the Shekinah glory of God comes down, fills the building, the priests have to exit. And so now we have this visible presence of God dwelling with man. Where do God and man meet? They meet in the temple. And again, as the code gets built up more and more and more, because now we've got the Holy of Holies, and we've got the outer court and the holy place, what's, what's being stressed is you don't just waltz in and sort of the high-five God. Hey, God, what's up? No. You do washings and oblations, and you can only come this far, and then maybe you give a sacrifice, you come a little closer. And God's holy and you're not, so you need to be real and take this really serious. That's what's being communicated. And so for a couple hundred years, that goes on. And then Jesus shows up and he says, destroy this temple in the three days, I'll raise it. And so what Jesus is claiming is, I'm really the temple of God. Okay, in what sense? God and man meet, Jesus became man, and Jesus is where sin will be decisively dealt with. Then the next step is in 1 Corinthians, both individually and corporately, the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 6, you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't sleep with prostitutes because you're the temple. But in chapter 3, when we're dealing with the factions and Apollos and Paul, do you not know you, plural, you all, are the temple of God? And if anyone builds on that temple with costly gems, they'll get the reward if they build with hay and struggle. So the church is the temple. Okay, in what sense is the church the temple of God? The church is now, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, where God and man meet, now that Jesus is in heaven, and through the proclamation of the gospel, this is where man, this is where sin gets dealt with, in the sense, not that we're atoning for sin, but people are being forgiven, sin is being dealt with, through the proclamation of the gospel as they come to faith in Jesus through the church. The church is temple in that sense, right? Okay, now you get finally to the new heavens and the new earth, and man and God are fully at peace, Nobody exists who is not reconciled to God in the new heavens and the new earth. There's people in outer darkness, but everyone in the new heavens and the new earth is fully at peace with God. There's no more sin to be dealt with, so there is no temple, for God is with his people. And in that sense, you could view all of the new heavens and the new earth as temple. All of it is the place where man and God are meeting, and sin has been dealt with. That's the, the biblical theological thread that starts in Eden and works all the way to Revelation chapter 20 which is where that's sort of getting at, which is part, I think, helpful for when you're reading your Old Testament and you're going through Exodus and you get through like six chapters of the tabernacle and you're thinking, why do I care about a tabernacle? I'm never going to build a tabernacle. I'm probably never going to see a tabernacle. This is a step on the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's, that's one of the cool things to see is that thread going through. We're over time. Um, I'll be happy to take any more questions up here. See you all next week. God bless.